2 Corinthians chapter 7, or so, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 to 18. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue, continue our look at this uh, amazing letter uh, of 2 Corinthians, also called an epistle. Uh, it's a letter that was written to a very small church uh, in the city of Corinth. Uh, if you've been with us, Corinth was a, a pretty wealthy city in the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, it was a place that had booming commerce and trade because of its geography uh, and where it was located. Uh, and therefore, because of that booming commerce, uh, most of the folks that were living in the city of Corinth were probably middle to upper class folks. Um, they came from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of different religions. So it made it a, a very multicultural city in a lot of ways. And what we know is that Paul went and planted a small church in this city of Corinth. Uh, and from the minute he left, there was all sorts of trouble in this church. Uh, there was trouble with all sorts of different uh, sexual immoralities. Uh, there was trouble of the ecclesiastical kind. And so if you read the first letter to this church, 1 Corinthians, you see Paul's dealing with issue after issue in this uh, little church whom he had a lot of affection for. Then you come to this second letter of the second Corinthians and Paul's dealing with much more of a personal issue in this letter because what we know is that opponents entered the church, they snuck into the church after Paul left and they were seeking to discredit Paul and his leadership every single step of the way. They wanted to draw people away uh, from following Paul and following Paul's teaching. So what you learn pretty quickly about this letter is Paul is on his heels from the very beginning, needing to offer all sorts of defense of his ministry and uh, the message in which he preached. But as you read the letter, you recognize that his defense is different than what you would expect. He's on his heels, so you would expect a certain amount of defense, but his defense is different. Because he doesn't defend himself on his strengths. He doesn't put his strengths forward in his defense, but instead he boasts in his weaknesses and he boasts in his struggles. So think for a minute before we read our passage, think for a minute for the last time you went on a job interview. And imagine walking into the room and uh, you uh, give them your resume and what does that resume say? It's all the things that you're strong in. It talks about your educational qualifications. It's talking about your experiences that, that qualify you for the job. And you've got an interviewer there and they're asking you stories about your life and you're talking about all your strengths in this situation and that situation. You're giving evidence and proof of how you're qualified for the job. And then have you ever been in one of these interviews where they say, and what's your greatest weakness? You always wondered how do you answer that question? What's your greatest weakness? I can remember there was an episode of The Office not too long ago where they asked the boss on the show, a guy named Michael Scott, uh, what, are your, what are your weaknesses? And he says, my weaknesses are that, that I work too much and I care too much, which actually are my strengths, which is the perfect workaround in that situation, right? But think about that as you think about Paul in this letter. And instead of boasting about his strengths against his opponents, he talks about his weaknesses. He turns everything over on its head. His credibility is being challenged. And so he counters by speaking about all of his weaknesses. He puts his spiritual resume, as it were, out there. And he talks about all the ways he's been persecuted and beaten down, all the ways that he is weak. 
It's the complete reverse of what we would expect, but it's very symptomatic of the upside down kingdom of God where it's always different than what we expect. So let me read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'm going to be reading uh, from verses 7 to 18. You can follow along on the screens or in your bulletins or in your copy of God's Word. 2 Corinthians 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what was written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is God's word. Father, we pray for the next few moments as we sit and reflect on your word, uh, these powerful words from 2 Corinthians. Help us to understand uh, not just what they mean in their context, in their situation, but also what they mean for each and every one of us in our unique context, and our unique situation. Father, you promise to apply this word to our hearts as we read it and meditate on it by the power of your spirit. And so, We invite your spirit to do that very thing, to apply your word to our hearts so that we would leave here changed, drawn closer to you, and refreshed in the truth of the gospel. Do this for us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So in verse 7, at the very beginning of our passage, uh, Paul compares followers of Jesus Christ to jars of clay. He calls Christians jars of clay, and that becomes this prevailing image uh, that Paul unpacks in our passage, and it's the image that I want us to unpack this morning as we look at God's Word. And what I hope us to see is what it means to be a jar of clay, what it means to be a jar of clay. And what I hope us to see, for us to see is this, that being a jar of clay means accepting our weaknesses so that God's strength can be magnified. It means focusing on the unseen And finally, it means looking expectantly to glory. This is what it means to be a jar of clay. So let's look at that first point. Being a jar of clay means accepting our weaknesses 
so that God's strength could be magnified. Verse seven, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So Paul talks about this jars, these jars of clay uh, and that there's a treasure inside of these jars of clay. Well, what is Paul referring to when he's talking about this treasure? Well, if you've been with us for the past couple weeks, uh, you'll know what he's talking about. He's talking about the power of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. In chapter three, he calls the gospel the ministry of righteousness that is far better than the ministry of condemnation. He calls it the ministry of life, which is far better than the ministry of death. He says that in the gospel, we get to behold the glory of God. And as we look on God's glory, as we behold it, we're transformed day by day on the inside. And if you were with us last week, we saw that the gospel is the power of light shining into the darkness and how the darkness is powerless, completely powerless to fight back and resist the power of light. And so Paul, taking all these images and wrapping it together, essentially is telling us that the gospel is this incredible treasure. The good news of Jesus Christ, it's of cosmic value because it brings all those things. It brings life and hope and grace. It is of utmost value. And so what Paul's reminding us is this, that all these things that come with the gospel, things like grace, things like hope, life, righteousness, peace, All of these are yours. They are yours if the light of the gospel has shone into your darkness. It is your treasure. Uh, One of the things I've done this year is I've decided that I'm going to always have a fiction book going. I think that's always important. So I've been trying to find fiction books this year. And so uh, just this past week, I I picked up J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. I don't know if you've ever read it before. You've probably seen the movies, uh, but it's a great story. It's a wonderful little story, but it follows these characters as they go uh, over mountains and valleys. Uh, They go through all sorts of danger, fighting trolls and goblins. Uh, They, even at the very end, willingly fight a dragon, all so they could get a treasure. They do all of it for a treasure. Well, think about that and think of Paul's words. Christians, you have that treasure, but it is of infinite value. It is yours in Jesus Christ. Think about that verse in in Ephesians 1. I know I talk about this verse all the time, but I'm just blown away about it every time I read it. Ephesians chapter 1, all the blessings, take that word blessings out, put treasure in, all the treasure in the heavenly realms is yours in Jesus Christ, all of it. Nothing at all is withheld. And so when it comes to the gospel, if you've accepted that, if that's something you've believed in, placed your trust in, then you are spiritually rich beyond comparison. It's Paul's image, you're spiritually rich beyond comparison. And so we have this treasure, but Paul says something interesting there. He says, we carry that treasure around in jars of clay. Now, I don't know if that sounds surprising to you, but if you read this in the first century, it would be very surprising. Here, Paul used this image. 
Because what do we do? If we have valuables, if we discover a treasure, what do we do? We would put it in a, maybe a safety deposit box at the bank where it's got cameras on it and, and 24-hour guards. Or we'd take it to our house and we'd buy a safe that we bolt to the ground and has multiple combinations. And we, we put it in that safe to we, so we can keep that treasure safe. What wouldn't we do? Well, we wouldn't carry it around flippantly. We wouldn't carry it around on the street in one of those little plastic bags that's got holes in it, which I think are illegal in Baltimore City now. We certainly wouldn't do that. Why? Because we could lose this treasure. But that is sort of what Paul is saying here. Because in Paul's day, jars of clay, they were cheap. Uh, They were easily broken. And so because of that, they were expendable, right? You could break it, not worry too much about it, and go out and get another one. I think probably the closest thing we have in our culture are those terracotta pots that you get for $2 at Home Depot. You've seen these before. Uh, That's the closest equivalent to what Paul's talking about here. And we know that those terracotta pots, they're flimsy, they're expendable. In fact, when my wife and I moved into Homeland, uh, three days after we moved in, uh, we had a backup in the basement. And one of the things that we discovered is that all the, the sewer pipes in our neighborhood were made in the 40s with terracotta. And we wondered why on earth would they make something so precious as getting rid of sewage? Uh, why would they make that out of terracotta and not something that's stronger? Because after years and years, what happens? Roots grow in it and rocks and all the things break, right? Why on earth would you carry a treasure in a jar of clay? Why would you do that? That's Paul's point. But what's he doing? He's saying he's comparing our earthly bodies to jars of clay. He's admitting that we're weak, that we are frail, that we're prone to all sorts of aches and pains. And I know the older I get, the more I recognize the aches and the pains that are true in this life. But what Paul's saying here is that 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 weakness isn't just limited to our physical bodies, but we're fragile people all over. Our egos are easily wounded. Often our emotions are on a roller coaster. They're up one minute and they're down the next. You and I were prone to sin. We're prone to unfaithfulness. We're prone to, to wander away from God. Our faith is wavering. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so Paul it freely admits that his earthly body is weak and frail, but everything about him is weak and frail. And this had a special meaning for Paul because he was often beaten to the brink of death because of persecution for the sake of Jesus Christ. So what is Paul doing here? He's freely admitting, freely admitting his own weakness and his own frailty so that the value of the treasure might be magnified. So that the value of the treasure might be magnified. He freely admitted that he was weak so that the strength of God could always be on display in his life. He admitted that he was like broken pieces of a jar in order that God's strength could be magnified. Now, why does he do this? His opponents, his opponents wanted to make it all about them. They wanted everyone to perceive them as honorable vessels that were worthy of value and strength. And Paul steps in and says, don't look at me at all. Don't look at me at all. I'm weak. I'm frail. Instead, look at the power of Jesus 
that is within me. Friends, I think we all would probably admit that we got a, a bit in our character that looks a lot like jars of clay. We're often broken. We often need God to step in and to put us back together. In fact, I kept thinking this week of the, the ancient uh, Japanese culture practice of kintsugi. I think I'm saying that right. And if you know this about Japanese culture, this is when jars or ceramics would get broken. And instead of throwing them away, they would sort of meld them back together with a compound that had all sorts of gold flakes on it. And so the gold would reflect and highlight the cracks that were in all of this ceramic. And I, boy, I think we're a lot like that, aren't we? We're a lot like that. We're broken people, and yet we're held together by the grace of God. And those cracks, they reveal and they reflect God's glory and God's strength in these broken jars that are constantly being melded back together, we carry around the treasure of God. So I think if we're gonna take Paul's example, it means that we should always as Christians live within and lead with our weaknesses. Not because we're supposed to be falsely modest or not because we're supposed to be overly self-deprecating, but just simply because we understand a true estimate of ourselves and who we are. And so we live in and we lead with our weaknesses so that God's strength can be magnified. That sometimes is hard for our ego, isn't it? Sometimes hard for us to accept, to live in that. Many of you know that, that I coach and I've been coaching high schoolers for a long time and for years I've tried to stay in shape with the high schoolers so that I could run with them and at least stay competitive with them and it's been a, a source of pride for me for a long time. And then uh, last week I tweaked my back and I could barely walk around and so I go to practice, I'm still able to go to practice and I go to practice and they say, coach, you kind of look like a grandpa today. I said, well, thank you. Thank you. I look like grandpa. Now, when I a younger me would have been very offended by that, right? But, but in that moment, I just laughed it off and said, doesn't matter. Why? Because it's not about me. It's about them. Now, the reason I tell you that story is there's just such amazing freedom in letting go of our egos, in let of, letting go of having to have it all together, uh, letting go of having to be perfect or to portray this image of perfection and strength and instead live within our weaknesses. That's what Paul is talking about here, the freedom that comes from living in our weaknesses. He says in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, being a jar of clay means accepting and admitting our weaknesses so that God's treasure can be on display for the world to see. But we also see here, and I'll move quicker on these last two points, we also see here that being a jar of clay also means focusing on the unseen. The last verse, for we, for we look not on the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's really not saying anything new here. Jesus, when he was here on earth, said virtually the same thing. And yet it is so contrary to the world in which we live in. We live in what some have called a materialistic world or with a materialist worldview. And that says that the only things that are real are the things that we can touch or taste, the things that we can 
experience through our senses. And that means that there's nothing really sacred out there. There's nothing really supernatural out there because science and other things, logic, rationality, uh, have ruled all those things out. So all we have is what we can touch. And so therefore, the logical conclusion of that is if that's all there is, then we live for the now. We live for the now. We, we eat, we drink, we be merry, for tomorrow we will die. You do everything in this life to simply maximize the pleasure now and minimize all the pain. But of course, the Bible calls us to something different. It calls Christians, it calls followers of Jesus to live differently than the, what the world presents around us. I read an article this week uh, about finances and uh, was talking about how there's sort of two types of people in the way they think about their finances. And I know some of you have a history in finance. They call them uh, uh, fire people versus YOLO people. All right. What it meant by this was fire people. I think the fire stands for um, uh, financial independence so you can retire early. Right. That's one way of living. And then you've got the YOLO people. And that is you only live once. Right? So are you a fire person or are you a YOLO person? And of course, it was advocating for this fire approach to think about the future, to be oriented uh, beyond just today and this very moment. Well, friends, the Bible awakens us to, react to this reality that there is more than what we see, that there is a sacred realm there is a supernatural realm, there is an eternity out there, and those things are just as real as the material world that is around us every day. There is a God, there are angels, there are demons, there is an eternity. God's kingdom, though we don't see it, is at work around us day in and day out. And what Christians realize is this. Christians realize that what is unseen is of utmost importance. And when we recognize that when what is unseen is of utmost importance, it changes the things that we value in life and it changes the things that we treasure in life as well. Paul's reminding us the things of this world, they're temporary. They are transient and therefore value what lasts, value what is eternal because the kingdom of this world is fading away. It is temporary, but the kingdom of God is eternal. And we live for that kingdom, a kingdom that will never spoil or fade away. Now, I know what you're thinking. That doesn't sound very fun. And I don't think that means that we can't enjoy this life and the pleasures that this life has, because it has so many and they are gifts from God. It doesn't mean we can't celebrate good things in and of this life. It simply means that we recognize above all other things, we recognize that ultimate enjoyment, ultimate celebration is not in this kingdom or in this life. It is in the next. It is in the next. And therefore, our last point, jars of clay look expectantly to glory. Look expectantly to glory. In verse 17, if you know Paul's life at all, this verse is amazing. He calls light and momentary afflictions. All right? Look at Paul's life. We would not call those light and momentary afflictions. We would call them serious hardships. And yet Paul says, for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all 
comparison. See, jars of clay are heavenly minded. Paul was willing to endure hardship, suffering, affliction, because he knew that no matter how bad his life on this earth got, no matter how hard the affliction was, he knew that what was awaiting him on the other side was far better than anything worth comparing. Because of heaven, Paul said he was afflicted, but not crushed. Because of heaven, Paul could say he was perplexed, but not driven to despair. Because of the hope of heaven, he could be persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. You see, Paul could endure suffering because he knew what awaited him on the other side. And so therefore, what did he do? All his life, he looked to his Savior, Jesus Christ. He looked to his Savior who was crushed. He looked to his Savior who was driven to despair. He looked to his Savior who was forsaken and who was destroyed He saw that the hope of heaven was secured because his savior, Jesus Christ, was crucified for him. And so friends, Paul calls us, the scriptures call us to have this same spirit of faith. To not lose heart, no matter how difficult and challenging our present and momentary afflictions might be, to never lose heart. Why? Because heaven is real. It is real. And its greatness far outweighs even the greatest sadness of his life. So friends, if you are a Christ follower, then you are called to be a jar of clay, to admit your weaknesses so that God's strength could be magnified, to focus on the unseen, and to look expectantly towards glory. Let's pray.